0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor of the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is The Atlantic's David Frum, whose most recent book is Trumpocalypse. And we are going to address a number of things in the news today. We're going to get to the raging debate on the right about what to do about the prospect of a second Trump term. Should we unite behind someone else or some other course of action? But first... I would like to begin with the Democrats and the lesson of the 2021 elections. It is a remarkable thing in America when a New York Times editorial says things like this, I quote, speaking of the race in Virginia, this is the New York Times, Democrats lost there." even with a long-time moderate as their candidate for governor because the party has become distracted from crucial issues like the economy, inflation, ending the coronavirus pandemic and restoring normalcy in schools and isn't offering moderate, unifying solutions to them. And that was one quote. Here's one more. The concerns of more centrist Americans about a rush to spend taxpayer money a rush to grow the government should not be dismissed. So David from are you as amazed as I am that the New York Times of all places is sounding like the bulwark?
1: They've caught up with you at last. <laughs> uh, look, well, obviously we have to be very careful about over-interpreting these plus one elections. Turnout is low, political mobilization is low, the out party always cares more, and there's a long tradition of the out party doing much better than the in-party in, in the plus one. But what we can see, and here are a couple of things I think really to point out to. one, DeSantis is one of the most popular governors in America, and should anything happen to Donald Trump, a credible candidate for the Republican nomination, because among all the foolish and silly and provocative and obnoxious things he's done, he made one tough call, which is he reopened his state schools to in-person instruction last August. Parents reward that. The blue state governors, by and large, yielded to pressure from teachers' unions and said no. And the other thing that is going on right now that I think is very important is the pressure on family budgets from rising prices. And this is an issue that has been invisible to a lot of people who who talk about politics because... You click the button on Instacart and whatever comes, comes. But for people who are really shopping carefully, uh, what has been happening to the price of beef, what has been happening to the price of milk, what's been happening at the pump, those prices have become an overwhelming issue. And the last thing that's going on, this is a place where these economic and the cultural concerns coincide, is the kinks in the supply chain plus this huge consumer demand driven by the money that has been put in consumers' hands means that there's a job shortage that is summoning workers from across the world to come to the United States. They're behaving rationally. Why wouldn't they come? But the Biden administration has been overwhelmed and faces a border crisis, not exactly of its making, but that is upsetting a lot of moderate-minded voters, especially in the South and West. Okay.
0: With apologies to the rest of the panel, who I will come to in just a minute, I want to pursue this inflation matter a little further. You wrote a book called How We Got Here, a fantastic book about the 1970s, and I remember your description of inflation in that book. It was really uh, memorable. In any event, there's a lot of talk about this being transitory, although those voices are now... Getting a little quieter, especially with the latest number coming out that we had 6.2 percent. that is the highest that we have seen in this country since 1990. But I want you to respond to the argument that Jonathan Chait made, which is that the inflation that we are seeing is a combination of the quantitative easing, the bond buying program of the Fed, combined with the huge 1.9 trillion American rescue plan, which, Was immediate money put into Americans' pockets, meant to be spent immediately to prevent the economy from really tanking, and that that is what created all of this liquidity. Whereas, Chait argues, the Build Back Better program is not inflationary because it's spread out over 10 years. There are taxes in it so that it's not more deficit spending. What do you make of that argument? Well,
1: remember. The inflation you get today is the product of the choices you made three years ago. So the economy as huge as the United States does not respond quickly to actions of the government. And that's one of the reasons why disinflation is so difficult, because you start doing things and the inflation does not respond, because it just takes a while for these things to feed through. So along with the things you mentioned, all the stimulative actions that took place in 2020, um, Trump administration's actions, they're part of the price increases that we're getting now. And I'm not even going to say that those decisions were necessarily wrong. But given that that's so, yes, the inflation may be transitory. You know what else is transitory? congressional majorities and presidential (laughs) administrations. And I think there's a very practical choice that America faces, which is relatively moderate actions now to reduce demand, to raise interest rates, to withdraw support from money markets, which will probably begin to have benefit in two years or more drastic actions after the 22 elections, which I think is what is going to be coming. And the first means that the Democrats are probably in trouble in 2022. But the second course means that Biden or whoever it is will be running in 2024 in the context of rapidly rising interest rates. Last point on interest rates. People say, well, it's just a point or it's just two points. What's the big deal? But if you're a small business right now, you're probably paying on your line of credit, maybe five points if if you've got a good credit record. If that line of credit goes up to six and a half. Yeah, it's only a point and a half. In percentage terms, if you look at how much were you paying for borrowing before and what's your coupon now, that's a much more dramatic increase and that affects your hiring. And that may even affect whether you continue to maintain your employment at the level it is now. So if we get a couple of points of interest rate increases in 2023, instead of a half a point of increase now, it's gonna really ramify through the economy in time for the 24 election.
0: Damon. In response, perhaps, to the uh, election results, the Democrats, with the help of some Republicans in the House, did finally pass the hard infrastructure bill. But when Biden was asked about inflation, he said that the answer was to pass the Build Back Better program, that this would be the way to fight inflation. So, on the one hand, he's acknowledging that inflation is a problem, so he's not pretending it's not there. But on the other hand, does it feel like the Democrats are just too much in this rut and can't maneuver? I mean, I, one does think of Bill Clinton. Now, admittedly, these election results were not as devastating as as Bill Clinton's reverses in 1994. But they are a very, I would argue, very strong signal, especially in, in more liberal precincts where we're voters were sort of rejecting the progressive worldview. So do you think that The Biden administration is signaling this well, that that they're on it, that they can change gears?
2: Well, I think they're in a tough bind here. Clearly, the Biden administration very much wants both of these bills to pass, not just the infrastructure plan, in part because... Then he's going to have a kind of raging brush fire on his left if the Build Back Better Act doesn't pass, because the progressives will be furious with him. He's also staked his political capital on getting this passed, and he knows that he will end up looking weak and sort of hapless, as he has been for the last few months, even more so if it doesn't pass. So there are those straightforward kind of short-term political considerations in mind. And because inflation is The big economic problem at the moment, he's trying to fold those two things into the same message. And I don't really think it's very coherent. I mean, there are ways in which if you kind of squint and tilt your head to the side and look at the numbers in the Build Back Better Act, you could you could come up with rationales for how certain elements in it will have a long term impact on lowering prices in certain segments of the economy. That was one of the ways that Obama justified the Affordable Care Act. We're bending the cost curve. We're going to save money over the long term. And you can make that case about parts of the Build Back better act. But clearly, that's like saying like, oh, you know, this segment of the economy in eight years will things will be a little cheaper. That has nothing to do at all with the cost of gas and milk and beef and the other things that are driving up costs now and making people's lives more difficult. So I don't think it's very convincing. That's why inflation is so bad. Mm -hmm. It's unlike with unemployment or a general slowdown in the economy. We've all sort of internalized, even conservatives have internalized kind of basic Keynesian principles, like, all right, step on the gas, spend a little more, rev things up a little bit. Then you also can go the Fed path and so forth, which we've done a lot of over recent years when things slow down. But with inflation, as David was sort of indicating with some of his comments... Most of the things that you can do, first of all, don't take effect for a long time. And secondly, they cause other kinds of pain. Mm -hmm. And so how Biden is supposed to respond to this, it's a problem. And he could just go back uh, while he's still around and have a chat with Jimmy Carter about how (laughs) difficult it can be. (laughs) Um, So uh, he's in a bind. I don't really know what to advise him. I do think trying to sell passage of the Build Back Better Act as a response to inflation is unpersuasive and faintly ridiculous. So I I don't really think that's very helpful. The last point I'll make is simply he's also very afraid that because it involves spending a lot of money, even if spread over 10 years, there is the danger that any momentum that was behind that bill is going to now just fall out and wane because Republicans and more moderate Democrats are going to be more receptive to the argument that what are we doing, spending more trillions of dollars when the economy is already overheating? That'll just make things worse, in fact, not better.
0: Yeah, Bill, not only is President Biden in a tough spot, but Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, is also in a tough spot. And let's just note, as everyone has already said, but underline it with green ink that, or red ink, as the case may be, that whereas problems like unemployment hit some segment of the population, and it's never good to have high unemployment, inflation hits Far more people. I mean, it hits everyone, but it really hurts everybody who's poor and middle class. And there's nothing that will make voters angrier faster than when all their prices are rising and 60% of voters right now blame President Biden for it because he's president. So coming to the Powell problem, one of the devilish things about inflation, about fighting it is, as Damon points out, there are only a a couple of tools that you have. One, the Fed mentioned it's going to taper its bond purchases. By the way, when they tried to do this, I think in 2013, the stock market went berserk. And I love this line. People called it the taper tantrum. So Powell... He's worried about raising interest rates, which is the one way we know to cut back on inflation expectations, right? He doesn't want to do that, right? Because we want to revive the economy. We don't want a recession. On the other hand, if you delay too much in raising interest rates, then people lose confidence in the Fed's toughness on inflation and that lack of trust feeds inflationary expectations and causes inflation to redouble. I take it that had a question
3: mark at the end of it. Well, yeah.
0: I mean, I'm just saying it's a very hard (laughs) position for the Fed as well. And and what have you to say about all this wise seer from Brookings and the Wall Street Journal?
3: (laughs) Well, I've been writing about the rising inflation problem for some time now. It was regarded as somewhat transgressive of disciplinary boundaries here at Brookings (laughs) in a very friendly way. But there's a context to all of this. We have been in an environment of declining inflation rates and interest rates now for 40 years, ever since Paul Volcker got it under control. And if you listen to the old heads on Wall Street and in the bond markets, they are pointing out, I think correctly, that two generations of investors have grown up without inflation on their radar screen. And so the impact of this sudden surprise is being magnified, you know, by how discordant it is with their entire life's experience. And a lot of the political and economic reflexes that were well honed in The 1980s and 1990s have atrophied from disuse. And and a lot of people who didn't go through it in the 70s and early 80s don't really have any concrete idea of what it means, what it feels like, and what you need to do in order to bring it under control, and how time is not your friend. And so Jay Powell is trying to maneuver within a context that is very, very unfavorable, to an effective fight against inflation. There's a further problem. The Fed has what is known as a dual mandate, and that is price stability and full employment, whatever that means. And Powell, with the energetic backing of the White House, has kept his foot on the accelerator on the premise that we are very far from full employment. The evidence for that is that we are still down more than 4 million jobs from the peak reached in February of 2020, right before the pandemic hit. The problem with that premise is that employers are reporting just the opposite. Massive labor shortages, inability to hire people they need for crucial positions, enormous by recent historical standards wage increases in order to uh, attract people back into the labor force, which uh, has not been terribly successful so far. And it is possible that we are a lot closer to full employment than we think because a lot of the 4 million people plus have checked out of the workforce and aren't coming back. And that is a really crucial area of uncertainty where judgment is everything. My own view, for what it's worth, and it's been my view for quite some time, is that the majority of the people who checked out are not going to check back in again. And so the the wage increases that we've been seeing recently are an accurate signal of the labor pool that's available to employers. If that is the case, then the time to put the foot on the brakes is now and not six months or nine months from now. But to do that, would have an immediate short-term impact that the administration and Democrats in particular would deplore and resist as energetically as they can. And you know, I don't want to question anyone's motives, but the fact that Powell's renomination as Fed chair has not yet been decided and announced is surely something that he's conscious of. And so all of which is to say that I think the Fed is in a very tough spot because of expectations that have been built up both by this administration and by the experience of most Americans in the past 40 years.
0: Okay. Linda, I want to ask you about something that's adjacent to this question about inflation and the labor market and so on. And it's, it's this. So as Bill mentioned, and others have mentioned, we currently have an economy in which employers are begging people to come to work. You cannot pass a restaurant or fast food place without seeing big signs in the window saying we're hiring. People say no waiting, you know, come on in. I mean, it is notable. And and employers are, of course, talking about the difficulty of finding people to work, they're raising wages and so forth. But my question is, is the decline in illegals coming into the country part of what we're seeing here? Is it that during COVID, we really did lock down the borders and made it really impossible for people to come for a stretch of time that that might be having an impact. Not that this is either good or bad. I'm just wondering whether you think that might be one of the things that's contributing.
4: Well, it certainly is contributing that we do not have a proper immigrant flow into the United States to take jobs that are going wanting. I mean, the fact that you have 10 million jobs that's you know employers can't seem to fill, and you're absolutely right, and several people have mentioned it, raising wages will only bring people who are willing to do the job you want them to do into the workforce. You cannot raise wages enough to bring people in to do certain jobs. And the fact that we don't have a functioning immigration system in the United States right now is having an enormous impact on inflation. When you look back to the the vibrant economies, back, for example, to the Reagan years, the Clinton years, you had a lot of people coming into the United States, both legally and illegally. I want everybody to come legally. But in order to do that, you have to give them a way to do so. And because we have had this absolute paralysis in Washington on immigration law and getting any kinds of reforms passed means that we are simply using a system that may have made sense in 1965, it makes no sense in 2021. So the labor shortage could in fact be enormously alleviated if we started letting in more people. When you look at inflation right now, when you look at the inability to be able to move goods in this country, to offload them off of ships and to move them from the coast to the interior of the United States, there's a huge shortage right now of truck drivers. It is a labor shortage that is driving a lot of inflation. When you have people wanting goods and you don't have an adequate supply of those goods, the price is going to go up. And that is happening across the board. Why we cannot get politicians to realize that we've got to figure out a way to get those people who have the skills to do certain kinds of jobs, to be able to come in, even if only on a temporary basis, to be able to take those jobs. That's one thing. The other thing that that I just want to briefly mention that we haven't talked about in terms of inflation is the impact of oil. And the fact is, uh, Saudi Arabia is... If Donald Trump were still in office, Jared Kushner would be on the telephone to Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and uh, they would work out a deal where uh, Saudis would begin pumping more oil uh, and releasing more oil, and you'd see the price go down. That's not happening now. Uh, A a lot of it is there's a lot of ill will between the Biden administration and the Saudis, some of it for very good reason. Uh, I don't think we should be dealing with Mohammed bin Salman. So yes, the fact that we don't have any kind of decent relationship uh, between the Biden administration and the regime in Saudi Arabia is problematic. Part of that I think also has to do with the fact that Biden wants to get back into the Iran uh, nuclear deal and even though it hasn't happened yet, uh, I think that has left a, a very bad taste in their mouth so so I think it's driven by two things it's inflation right now the the Two main drivers, I think, are the problem with not enough workers and the fact that oil production right now, again, held a little bit hostage, even though we could be producing more of our own. And we just went through a week of climate talks and the fact that we don't want to be pumping a lot more carbon dioxide into our air probably also doesn't help lower the cost of oil. David Frum. So, we've had a lot of
0: discussion about the possible causes of inflation during this podcast. And yet, the revered economist Milton Friedman is famous for having said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So, can you explain that and explain how that fits into all of these other things that we've been discussing vis a vis inflation?
1: What Friedman meant by that was he assumed that or he took for granted that that if you had a situation as we've had since 2020 and as we had previously after the financial crisis where governments are putting enormous amounts of purchasing power into people's hands that would only translate into a generalized inflation if the monetary authorities agreed because otherwise it would translate into real price increases in specific commodities and that would then make the economy slow down and and go into reverse. But we have had an incredibly permissive monetary environment. and We also have a, a new world, and this is something that really has changed since people like us came of age. The whole concept of what is money is a lot hazier than it used to be. I mean, this is a question that can make you kind of nuts if you think about it too much, Makes Um, your eyes
0: cross. Yeah. Yeah. Monetary
1: (laughs) thinking does attract a disproportionate number of cranks, but money has taken on ever wider meanings. But there's a lot of liquidity, let's put it that way. And Authentic increases in demand can translate into a generalized price increase. But let's say also say this: let's say you know there's an argument that some people have that well, what's happening right now isn't really technically speaking inflation, because even as the price of beef goes up, the price of cloud computing continues to come and down. So I, I actually I'm careful about using the phrase inflation. I talk about price increases from the point of view of the people who are going to be deciding the fate of. Congress and the president 22 and 2024, it doesn't matter whether this is a general price inflation or not. It only matters whether they are no longer able to buy things as conveniently as before. And I say all of this then has to be joined to the political environment. Because as Bill said, this is a judgment call. And some people are more forward-leaning and some are less. And if we were in a normal political environment, so you know what? pay your chances. And if Biden is right, he gets away with it. If not, then somebody else takes over, as happened in 1980. Carter got it wrong. Reagan was there. It's not the end of the world. But we are in a situation where if Biden and Jay Powell and other authorities get it wrong, what they are doing is opening the way to a return to power of a Trump administration that this time is much more bent on revenge and has a better idea of what it wants to do and how than it did in 2016-17. So it's a very scary... We, We... We're in a little bit like a situation like Italy in the 1970s where you had a two-party system. One party, the communists, was just too dangerous to trust with power. And when you have that, it's really important that the other party, the less dangerous party, not make mistakes.
0: Which will bring us to our second topic. There is a debate currently raging on the, well, what some people call the never Trump right, but that's really a misnomer at this point. But in any event, some polls are showing that Trump is now more popular than Biden. Polls are certainly showing that the Republicans have an edge on lots of important issues for the voters, including crime and the border and inflation and many other matters. So it's really dicey for the Democrats. And as David pointed out, the alternative is very, very frightening to about 55% of the country, but that may not be enough. So here's how the debate is shaping up. And uh, Damon, I'm going to come to you first on this. You wrote about it this week. Why don't you sketch it out? You've got Ross Douthat and Connor Friedersdorf Suggesting, well, Ross Douthat tweeted that Glenn Youngkin should run for president. (laughs) Um,
2: And Connor did that on, on the night of the election. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Connor wrote. Uh, Connor Friedersdorf wrote a, a piece for the Atlantic before the election. He sort of kicked off this whole debate, making the case that the best way to prevent Trump from becoming president again is for those who oppose him in the in the Republican Party to rally around a more acceptable alternative. And his choice in that piece, hypothetically, was Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Then on the the night of the uh, of the election we had a week ago, uh, where Glenn Youngkin won the governorship of Virginia, Ross had sort of tweeted in a bit of a giddy mood, Glenn Youngkin should run for president, and so this sort of kicked off uh, digital debate, with the Bulwarks own Sarah Longwell weighing in with I thought a very powerful piece a few days ago which is that actually neither Yunkin nor DeSantis nor pretty much anybody else who's considered to be the likely people to run, uh, besides Trump, to run for the nomination in 2024, none of them have sufficiently distanced themselves from Trump. Therefore, none of them should really be supported by anyone who is worried about Trump's influence because The core problem of Trump is really his voters. You know, you can debate about whether it was that they had gone bad first and then Trump just came along or Trump sort of possessed them and made them go nuts and start to support overturning elections and so forth. The danger is that you support an alternative to Trump, but then if the base of the party demands that that person do something trumpian we have no reason to think they wouldn't go along with it because they're too cowardly to actually stand up to trump now The question then arises, does this mean that people who used to be uh, define themselves as never Trump, are they now never Republicans? So you basically can't ever vote for a Republican. You basically have to vote for a Democrat. And I think Sarah Longwell's position is technically speaking, not that, because she is very uh, openly says there's no reason why you couldn't support Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger or Larry Hogan or Charlie Baker. Any of them, all of them Republicans, you could vote for them for president. But of course, the reality is that all of them are either on the endangered species list. As Kinzinger has already said, that he's retiring, and uh, Cheney looks like she's going to be pretty darn vulnerable coming up. And with the governors, Hogan and Charlie Baker, they are both far too center center right governors to ever have any shot in a Republican primary in 2024. And so in effect, that position seems to be that, yeah, we can't really support any electorally viable republican so that's the the lay of the land in the debate and i i mean i did write a short piece about this because i do think it's an interesting and an important debate and argument i personally don't have all that much to contribute to it because as i sort of joke in my little column i became never republican before it was cool back <laughs> in 2004 i cut loose from the Bush administration during his reelection campaign for all kinds of reasons, Iraq, gay marriage, many other things. So I've sort of been in the position ever since then of saying, yeah, I don't always love the Democrat, but the Democrats as a whole, as an institution, are a more responsible alternative than what I consider the Republicans to be. So I am in effect a never Republican voter. And um, come on in. The water's fine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there, we have a caucus of
0: 12 people. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's at least double that. <laughs> um, Linda, one of the flaws that, as I see it in Connor Friedersdorf's piece, and I, I, I'm a big fan of his writing, but one flaw is that he said in 2016, the Republicans never coalesced around an alternative to Trump, and therefore Trump was able to march to the nomination and that's right but that's not the situation in 2024 in 2024 let's face it it is trump's for the asking there is no one it doesn't matter if you know if every uh, intellectual and never trump republican and and a whole bunch of others got behind Rhonda Santos, or, you know, Jesus Christ, it wouldn't matter. I mean, <laughs> Trump would have the nomination if he wanted it. So this idea of uniting around an alternative strikes me as a little bit fanciful as long as
4: Trump is in the picture. Well, I hate to uh, say you're right, but I think you are right. I think the nomination in 2024 is Donald Trump's for the asking. Whether he will go through with it and actually do that, I, I don't know. I, I mean, if I were betting today, I would say yes. But you know, 2024 is, after all, three years away. It's not, it's not tomorrow. Things can happen, including to him personally, both in terms of his health. He's not a young man. He's lost a little weight, but he's still overweight. Uh, doesn't get a whole lot of exercise. Something Both could happen. Both of his parents live to be in their nineties. Well, that's true. That is true. <laughs> um, but um, so something could happen to him, or he could decide that you know he's got he's got a lot of legal problems that could yet end up derailing his efforts. You know, he announced this big media. He's going to start his own media company. What motivates Trump? There are two things that motivate. Trump, I think one is adoration and the other is money. He's got the adoration for the asking with the Republican Party, but money still matters to him a lot. And if money uh, is not as easy to come by, and he if he is having some financial trouble, uh, that I think could motivate him. But uh, you know, I sort of despair when I hear Damon and when I hear others saying never Republican. I am still at heart. conservative Republican on policy issues, pretty much across the board. Not all social issues, but most economic issues. I am certainly a a traditional Republican on foreign policy and defense. That doesn't make me a Trump uh, Trump on those issues because he was anything but traditional uh, in those arenas. I will not Look forward to having uh, to vote uh, for a Democrat in 2024. I am very disappointed in Joe Biden. He d- is not leading the way I thought he would. He is, I think, he is lurch left. I think that in his rhetoric, in his tone, in his whole persona, he seems to be much more worried about progressives than he does about the very people who gave him the nomination and helped make him president. And that concerns me. And I also think he's too old. I think both Trump and Biden are too old to run for president. And I can say that with more authority as somebody who is almost as old as them. I'm 74. I think it's it's a scary time right now. I don't know who is going to emerge as the Republican nominee. And I'm very skeptical that a third party is viable in the United States. It never has been. I think the best thing that could happen for the future of America would be for Biden to decide not to seek a second term, for Kamala Harris not to seek the nomination, and for a younger, uh, more centrist Democrat to emerge uh, as the nominee who could be a viable alternative to Donald Trump. Because as I said, Trump is right now likely to be on the ticket. Okay. Bill Galston.
0: So Damon put his finger on the worry um, that some of the people on Bulwark, at the Bulwark have, namely that it's the nature of the base. It's the nature of the Republican base that is the big worry and whether a candidate or a political figure would have the um, courage to stand up to them. And one of the things that we've seen about Ron DeSantis is that he is very much a creature of the base. He's thinking about them all the time. He passed a law in Florida um, immunizing, it was an anti-riot act, right? So it immunized drivers who drove their cars into protesters. He interfered with Cruise Line's efforts to to demand uh, proof of vaccination. You know, he has appointed as the Surgeon General of Florida a vaccine opponent. All of those things are—they're very Trumpian—and they also suggest that he would be a continuation of Trumpiness. Now, Bernie Belvedere, who's a who's a writer on Substack, he he disagrees. He says that it's Trump himself who is the real threat. He said, you know, that's that's where it is. Now, what do you make of this of this debate? <laughs>
3: Well, I'm, I'm going to stifle the easy, snappy answers and try to take your question seriously. I think that leadership matters, even when you're trying to lead subject to serious constraints. So, for example, a thought experiment. Glenn Youngkin is the, the nominee of the Republican Party, which he won't be for the reasons previously stated, but if he were and lost to Joe Biden or some Biden substitute by a couple of percentage points, what are the chances that he would do what the base would no doubt be urging him to, namely to challenge the results and to fight to overturn them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I don't think he would do that. I'm not so sure about Ron DeSantis, and uh, obviously, I do not know him or his record nearly as well as a lot of other people on this podcast. But I have almost zero confidence that he wouldn't simply try to do, to the best of his ability, what Donald Trump would have done if Trump had been the nominee. So I do think there's room for discretionary judgment, at least in these thought experiments. Some potential Republican candidates would not only heed the base, but magnify its worst instincts. Others would do their best not to succumb to the prompts from the base that they considered to be particularly immoral or distasteful or threatening uh, to the fabric of our democracy. And so in a world in which Donald Trump is not running for the Republican nomination for, for the reasons that Linda stated, or perhaps others, I certainly think it makes a difference who gets the nod to be the Republican nominee, and I would hope that under those circumstances, with Trump not in the race, that sound and respectable Republicans would not repeat the mistake that they made in 2016. And instead, well, they made lots of mistakes.
0: Would you would you urge people to to unite behind someone like DeSantis as a way to prevent? Trumpianism no, for the reason yeah, stated. Yeah, yeah the reason okay.
3: Stated because the whole premise of this thought experiment is that there is will be no functional difference
0: mm-hmm.
3: between DeSantis and Trump. I think mm-hmm. there would be a functional difference between a Youngkin and a Trump, or Youngkin and DeSantis, for that matter. So here's my bottom line: if Trump puts himself, you know, in running for the nomination, he will get it. The interesting question arises if he doesn't. And under those circumstances, I would urge Republicans of common sense and goodwill not to repeat what they did in 2016, but to rally around a single candidate who, among his or her other attributes, is among the least likely to challenge the fundamental constitutional order. And I would advise them to use that as their principal criterion for choice. David, from
0: some people might say that if Republicans followed Bill's advice, and I, I think he means it, you know, in good faith, but I think the response would be, okay, you've just written off forty percent of the Republican base. They will not vote for anyone who distances him or herself from Trump. That's just not on. It, it has to happen. So it has to be someone who is a Trump loyalist of some sort. Otherwise, they can't get the nomination,
1: right? So a joke. Okay. The village matchmaker comes to Yossi the Carpenter, who is has an unmarriageable son. Mm-hmm. And she says, I, I think I found a match for your son. He says, well, that's incredible. No one else has been able to. No, I've got it. It's the daughter of Lord Rothschild in Vienna. He's, he, he, he's dumbfounded. And he raises a series of objections. Vienna's so far away. Uh, the, the Rothschilds are barely Jews. Um, and doesn't know what the kosher, how, what would happen with the grandchildren. And, she, and the matchmaker just eloquently dismantles one objection after the other. And finally, Yossi says, terrific, fine, I'm convinced. You have my consent. To which the matchmaker says, well, that's half the job done. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So uh, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? Connor's free. Okay, Connor. you know, Maybe you like Ron DeSantis. Maybe other people. Barring indictment or hospitalization, Donald Trump is the Republican nominee in 2024.
0: I would That's, say death, not hospitalization.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Well, I didn't want to say the word. <laughs> I'm not even um, sure death yeah.
4: would do it, Tom.
1: <laughs> so he's going to be the nominee, barring those eventualities. Should should those eventualities arise, we will return to this conversation and have it again. But in the meantime, we have uh, we have this fact, which is the most corrupt president in American history, and there really is no runner-up, who interrupted the peaceful transition of power with a violent attempt to disrupt an election, that guy is going to be, barring some accident, the next leader of one of the two big parties in the United States. That's the thing to think about. And barstool politics of maybe it can be this governor, maybe it can that, Glenn Youngkin isn't going to run. And Ron DeSantis will only run in the event of indictment or hospitalization, or um, actually, indi- sorry, conviction or death, because right. the indictment <laughs> won't do it. Right, indeed. <laughs> uh, so so uh, there is no off-ramp here, um, that we have a Trumpy political party, and we have to deal with that. Now, uh, I if the question is, it, do we hope, uh, obviously, we have to hope that the n- many people who have supported Donald Trump, that we can find some way to rally them. To support legality and constitutionality again, and how that will happen, I don't know. But that is a question for the post-Trump era, and 2021 ought to have been the post-Trump era, but it's not. We're not in the post-Trump era yet. So let's not worry about hypotheticals. Let's be more, Let's let's stick to Yossi the Carpenter's first position, which is it's not going to happen.
0: Right, bringing me back to my hobby horse that I've been on basically since. January, which is that the only job that the Democrats in power really have is to govern in such a fashion that these Republicans cannot be returned to power. And they're not, they're not doing very well. Uh, Yeah, that's it. That's the only thing they should be doing. You know, all of this dream fantasizing about every liberal program they've ever wanted It's just—it's irresponsible in the face of the threat. It just is, and so the Democrats are almost as responsible for our current dysfunction as the Republicans, because they are really—they are whistling past the graveyard. Anybody disagree?
4: Hundred percent agreement. All right.
0: Well, that was—that was grim. So let us let us move on. We now come to the highlight or low light of the week. Arguably, the last topic was the low light. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let
3: us begin with Bill Galston. Uh, sure. The conventional wisdom after our chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan was that the attention of the American people would quickly you know, switch to purely domestic topics uh, that the memory of the kind of withdrawal it was would fade quickly and it would have no political am- impact. Just today, as a survey from a really interesting uh, group called More in Common, which explores polarization and antidotes to it, came out. It's called After Kabul, Veterans, America, and the End of the War in Afghanistan. Let me set this up briefly. Yeah. We've, you know, since 2 2001, more than 775,000 American troops have cycled through Afghanistan many more than once. Uh, there've been more than 2,400 deaths, almost 21,000 wounded. The war so far has cost more than 2 trillion dollars, and if you take the long tail, including care for veterans into account, When the dust settles in a few decades, it'll be more like $5 trillion. And it turns out that the American people remain extremely unhappy about the mode of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And veterans are enraged, more than enraged. 76% of veterans are angry about the way we withdrew from Afghanistan. 73% feel betrayed. That sentiment is especially intense among Afghanistan veterans. Two-thirds of veterans feel an acute sense of humiliation about the way we withdrew. Uh, You don't need to know a lot of history to know that these are very dangerous sentiments if left unattended. And I could Diagnose the consequences of these sentiments uh, in modern European history of many, many countries. So we better do something about this. And the survey indicates that, in addition to doing right by our veterans, the single most important thing we could do is to do right by all of the Afghans who worked with American forces over the past two decades. Our veterans really, really, really care about that. I surprisingly, they seem to care about that even more than they care about the one or 200 Americans who are still left behind in Afghanistan, many out of choice rather than necessity. Amen to that. And thank you for bringing that up on this
0: Veterans, Veterans Day. Veterans Yes, exactly. Um, this, this podcast won't uh, drop until tomorrow, but uh, we are recording on November 11th. Linda
4: Chavez. Well, I want to point to a highlight for the week. And first, I will just note to, to our listeners that among the various organizations I'm affiliated is an organization called Renewed Democracy Initiative. It was started uh, by the chess great Garry Kasparov and a host of others, uh, many of whom have been on this uh, program. And it is an organization that is focused on preserving democracy and particularly focused on the potential loss of democracy here in the United States. And I think Gari and others who are involved with this realize that the United States has stood as a beacon of freedom and liberty and democracy around the world. And it has given hope to many dissidents around the world. So the RDI has a new project called Frontlines of Freedom. And it is bringing attention to a variety of dissidents from various countries. And in conjunction with CNN, uh, which has launched uh, a new site on their website called Voices of Freedom, we are promoting uh, these voices of dissidents who talk about how American democracy was so important to them in their Fight in their own countries, and why it is so important to the world that the United States be able to preserve the democracy that we have. So I just would suggest you go to either cnn.com and look up Voices of Freedom or go to rdi.org and take a look at Frontlines of Freedom to hear these important voices talking about the future of democracy.
0: Thank you for that, Linda. I did uh, take a quick look at the statement uh, earlier today, and it made my Reaganite heart sing a little bit. Also made me sad because of how much has changed since then. But Yes, that's normal. Uh, okay, Damon Linker.
2: Well, I have a highlight, although I, I will say that it's less of a highlight than I sometimes have when I go on the positive side, simply because I'm going to be focusing some attention on something that, technically speaking, barely even exists. It's more of an idea, but it's an encouraging idea for me. Um There was an announcement this week on the, uh, it was actually made on the substack of Barry Weiss that uh, she and some others are involved in the proposed founding of a new university titled the University of Austin, as in Austin, Texas. A number of high profile people are involved in this. Well, first of all, the the, uh, head of this new school is a guy named Pano Canelos, who is uh, the former president of St. John's. Annapolis. Neil Ferguson, who wrote a, an interesting uh, Bloomberg column about this enterprise that he's involved with. Weiss, uh, Arthur Brooks, formerly of uh, AEI, Glenn Lowry, Nadine Strawson, uh, Steven Pinker, Andrew Sullivan, lots and lots of other people. Tyler Cowan, Jonathan Rauch, who was on the podcast just last week. In fact, uh, all of these people and many more are sort of announced on the board of advisors for this institution. The idea is sort of, in a nutshell, to create a university that will be decidedly non-woke, very much against the censoriousness that seems to be coursing through a lot of liberal institutions and especially universities these days. The reason why I'm only giving a mild kind of thumbs up for this is, is I, I was embroiled a lot this week on Twitter in in a lot of arguments about this place, and I was really kind of appalled by the vicious snarking against this by a lot of academics and liberal journalists on twitter about this and my stock response to it wasn't so much like this is a great thing how can you be so unfair it was simply like well this thing doesn't even exist yet can we just can we just sort of kind of nod and acknowledge that it's there and wait to see. Uh, I mean, this is a school that doesn't have a campus. It doesn't have a faculty. It doesn't teach courses yet. It's not accredited yet. All of these things have to happen. And they're on a timeline where within, say, the next three years, we might begin to be able to judge whether or not it's successful. And in the meantime, let a thousand flowers bloom. What's the problem in seeing what becomes uh, of a project that, uh, you know, I I think I I don't think there's anything wrong with giving something new a shot. Uh, Universities are very hard to start. There aren't a lot of new ones. And this one has some impressive people involved. And I'm eager to sit back and see what comes of it.
0: Thanks, Damon. I'm interested in this as well. A number of the people involved in this project are friends of mine. Others are people who I admire tremendously. There's just one thing that gives me pause, and that is that among their board of advisors or some such role, they, they chose Saurabh Amari, who explicitly is opposed to freedom of inquiry and said so. And they said, well, that's why we want you. and Or at least that's what he tweeted. Um, what do you make of that?
2: Yeah, that doesn't particularly bother me. I mean, if a third of the board of advisors were people with that view, I would definitely be concerned. I mean, I I taught for two years in the late '90s at Brigham Young University as a non-Mormon, and that's a school that has as part of its mission the idea of it being, in effect, a closed university in the sense that it's run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, formerly known as the Mormons. They don't like to be called that anymore, but uh, it's them. And uh, did I have to kind of conform to certain uh, moral and uh, sort of behavioral expectations while there? Yes, I did. There were kind of some broad uh, limits to what I would be allowed to say in the classroom. But for the most part, I actually found it an extremely vibrant educational experience. And I think it's okay to have one person on a board of advisors of a dozen or two dozen people, you know, that's part of, for me at least, that's part of what pluralism is all about, that you can you can leave room for, say, a Cidic Jew or the Amish person or the integralist Catholic in uh, Amari's uh, case and, uh, and have them kind of part of the mix. Again, I wouldn't want, if if it became him and Patrick Deneen and, you know, a dozen other people who are all sort of sectarian in their outlook on these questions, then I'd say, okay, you're founding a sectarian religious institution and clearly its motto cannot be the fearless pursuit of truth, which is what this place advertises as its goal. So I, you know, I noticed it it, it, with just the one person on the board didn't bother me very much, even though I don't like him personally very much. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, I I actually did find it
0: discouraging because you know it's it's one thing to say you you have certain religious views that you um, but that you respect others' views as well and uh, and Amari does not fall within that camp so that's I think not a good sign for them but we will see maybe maybe you're right maybe it'll all be fine in the end. All right, David from
1: highlight. On October 29th, uh, the FDA approved the application of the Pfizer vaccine for children 5 to 11. And as of the day that this podcast becomes available, we will have passed the millionth uh, person in that age range who will have had the vaccine. Let us hope that the 5 to 11-year-olds have a greater generational sense than some of their elders do, and that this, this spreads and spreads and spreads. But for all the many difficulties, we've lived through a medical miracle. Um, Human consciousness hasn't always kept up with that. We've seen a lot of antisocial behavior. But what what scientific research and know-how has delivered has just been amazing. And I am so looking forward to the imminent end of this epidemic. I think it's really time that we develop now plan to get the masks off. I've been in situations where I'm on like an airplane where 100% of everybody is double vaccinated. Let's get ready to call this terrible chapter in American history over, and let's thank the parents and to the young people who are you know, doing the next installment of moving us to the post-disease future.
0: Great. And uh, once again, hats off to the brilliant scientists who, who did this for us. Okay, I would like to flag a piece by the uh, political scientist or political analyst. I'm not sure he's a political scientist exactly, but his name is Rui Teixeira. Um, It's called Revisiting the Fox News Fallacy. And you can find it on Substack under the Liberal Patriot. And he wrote this piece a few months ago about the Fox News Fallacy, namely that people in the Democratic Party and on the left in general tend to dismiss anything that Fox is making a big fuss over as fake or or malevolent or something, uh, not something that requires serious people to pay attention to. And what he said was, just because Fox is demagoguing something doesn't mean it isn't a real issue. And so now he has come back to it with more data and points out, for example, that, of course, which we've talked about a lot in this podcast, but the you know, uh, defund the police was, you know, those candidates were voted down specifically by Black and Hispanic voters. That the CRT thing is not simply white parents who are resistant to teaching about the history of slavery and Jim Crow in this, in this country. That uh, the border is a serious issue that most Americans think needs to be uh, gotten under control. And he goes through a number of issues and says, look, If we uh, become, he he says that the left is not nearly as epistemically closed as the right. I mean, on the right now, if the New York Times published a story saying that the sun was going to rise in the east tomorrow, you know, 80% of Republicans would say they don't believe that because it came from the New York Times. So he said the, the left isn't quite that bad yet, but it's getting there. It's getting there. And so he warns against the Fox News fallacy. And I think it's uh, a lot of good common sense, something that people who are center left or left need to pay close attention to. He is, I hasten to add, on the left himself, or at least left of center, not, not right of center. So... With that, I want to thank David Frum for joining us. Always a great pleasure. And I want to thank the panel. And I want to thank all of our listeners. You guys have been amazing. Uh, Our numbers are really quite impressive. And we appreciate all of the listening. We appreciate the recommendations. We especially appreciate the ratings and reviews. Those really help. And we will return next week as every week.